0: You're listening to the SSPX Podcast. This is a series of conferences given by Father Thomas Asher of the Society of St. Pius X on the life of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's meant to be seen as a private retreat, a retreat that you can do while you're sheltering in place or at your house, perhaps with some extra time. For more conferences, resources, such as downloadable uh, instructions and information about Holy Week, as well as live mass times, please visit corona.sspx.online. Or for all of our conferences, please visit sspxpodcast.com. Now here's Father Asher. The Nativity, Luke's Gospel, Chapter 2, verse 1 through 20. And it came to pass that in those days there went out a decree from Caesar Augustus that the whole world should be enrolled. This enrolling was first made by Chirinus, the governor of Syria, and all went to be enrolled, every one, into his own city. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, out of the city of Nazareth, into Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and family of David to be enrolled with Mary, his espoused wife, who was with child. And it came to pass that when they were there, her days were accomplished that she should be delivered. And she brought forth her firstborn son, and wrapped him up in swaddling clothes, and laid him in a manger, because there was no room for them in the inn. And there were in the same country shepherds, watching and keeping the night watches over their flock. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood by them, and the brightness of God shone round about them, And they feared with a great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy that shall be to all the people. For this day is born to you a Savior, who is Christ the Lord in the city of David. And this shall be a sign unto you. You shall find the infant wrapped in swaddling clothes and laid in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly army, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace to men of good will. And it came to pass, after the angels departed from them into heaven, the shepherds said one to another, Let us go over to Bethlehem, and let us see this word that is come to pass, which the Lord hath showed to us. And they came with haste, and they found Mary and Joseph and the infant lying in the manger. And seeing, they understood of the word that had been spoken to them concerning this child and all that heard wondered at the those things that were told them by the shepherds but Mary kept all these words pondering them in her heart and the shepherds returned glorifying and praising God for all the things they had heard and seen as it was told unto them now before we get into the verse by verse reflection perhaps just a little bit of an overview uh, perhaps a maybe a predominant grace that we can take from this. I was thinking we're, we're making these recordings now during Lent. We're actually in the time of Passion Tide. It seems odd to be meditating on the nativity of our Lord. And yet we know that the, that the cross, that our Lord's suffering, that his passion was never far from him. It is said, I think it was Thomas Akempis in The Imitation of Christ, that there was not one moment in the life of our Lord when he was without suffering, and so we see that now, even in this, this third joyful mystery, you know, the, the mystery of our Lord's birth. And in fact, with all of the joyful mysteries, if you really stop and reflect upon them, of course, there's great joy bound up at every one of them. The Annunciation, the Visitation, the Nativity, etc. And yet there is always the shadow of the cross that, that shines or, or is cast over each one of these events. The cross is always near, and I would say in meditating here on the nativity of our Lord, if there's a, an overriding grace we want to get, it's going to be the grace to conquer any self-pity that may be in us. We know now in these, these difficult times that are, that are truly difficult, we're separated from the sacraments, we are in many cases suffering you know, severe financial uh, difficulties, and some of our families are, are really facing some serious crises not to mention, you know, the danger of death and the danger of contagion and the fear and everything that is that is gripping so many of our countrymen. And some people might even be tempted to say, where is God in all this? Why has he abandoned us? And yet, if we stop and think about it, we are Christians. And a Christian is nothing else than another Christ, a little Christ. In fact, it's a diminutive form of the, of the word Christ. That's what a Christian is. And we're going to see that the difficulties that we may have in our life, that really when you come down to it, they are nothing compared to the difficulties that our Lord endured and that those closest to our Lord endured. We think of the mother of God. We think of St. Joseph, this great saint. And we think of, of God himself made man and his father in heaven. You would think that the father would would have care for his son. You'd think that he would provide for him and and, and protect him, etc., and yet, reading the gospels, how often does it seem that God is silent? The, the family, the holy family, the holy family is suffering. We could imagine if if, if we were if we were Joseph or, or even if we were the Blessed Virgin Mary, we might be tempted to say, you know, this is your son. You need to do something, you need to take care of him, we would say to God the Father. And yet God is silent, or so it seems. We said before that the life of our Lord Jesus Christ is a model for us to follow. We are meant to follow his example, we are meant to to follow in his footsteps and those footsteps eventually are going to lead us to Calvary. Our Lord Jesus Christ made it clear if, if any man loved me then he will deny himself, he will take up his cross daily and he will follow me. Calvary is the path that is going to lead us to glory and if there had been a better way, well then surely our Lord would have would have followed it in word and in example. But he did not. And that may be a little bit daunting for us. But we're going to see that Almighty God is not going to ask us to do anything. Our Lord is not going to ask anything of us that he hasn't already done himself. And in fact, far more difficult things than he will ever ask of us. So rather than saying, woe is me, and why is this happening to me, and why does God allow this? Let's look at what he allowed. Let's look at the hand that he dealt his son and understand that if we truly are our sons and daughters of God, well, then we should expect really pretty much the same thing. And so, verse 1. And it came to pass that in those days there went out a decree from Caesar Augustus that the whole world should be enrolled. Now, I always like to point out on the retreats, isn't it interesting how God uses a pagan instrument to fulfill his will? Mary and Joseph are familiar with, with the prophecies that are surrounding or have been foretold regarding the Messiah, and they know that he is to be born in Bethlehem. But Mary and Joseph, of course, they're living in Nazareth, and they don't take any, any means, especially to, well, okay, if, if the Messiah is to be born in, in Bethlehem, well, then we should start looking for a home. Uh, I need to pack up the business. I guess we should move because that's where we need to go. We see how they don't preempt divine providence their attitude is is one of faith this is god's doing and if this is truly the messiah then he will be born in bethlehem god will see to that now we see as i mentioned how it's a pagan instrument it's caesar augustus who decides to take a census he wants to know how many how many citizens are there in his empire it's most likely for for tax purposes we can imagine And so one day, of course, Joseph is in the shop, Mary is at home, there's a knock on the door, and there is a Roman soldier, and they are asked what what tribe, what house, what family, etc. And they are told, well, they need to get down to Bethlehem because there's going to be a census. Now, it's interesting because, you know, David, you know, Joseph is of the house of David. David, in his pride, decided one day to take a census, and God was not pleased with it. In fact, there were Tens of thousands of of David's subjects that were struck dead by a pestilence because of David's pride. And so we can learn from that, that what may be permissible for for one person, for myself, may be, in fact, a sin, may be um, displeasing to God. Both David and Caesar, they both call for a census of their subjects. And yet with one of them, God is angered. And with the other one, he is fulfilling the will of God and fulfilling the prophecies this is a very good lesson for us because too often we look at our neighbor and we say, well, this person, you know, from from work or from the chapel or wherever, well, they do this. so Well, then it must be okay or it must not be that big of a deal. And perhaps for them, maybe they don't know any better or maybe um, for them this or that action or, or, or uh, undertaking is not really a problem. And yet for me, because of my weakness or because of, again, my duties of state or whatever it might be, we can see that it would not be in accordance with the will of God. Remember, our our model that we are to imitate is not our neighbor. The goal in our life is not to be as good as as the person next to me in the pew. My goal is to strive to to reproduce, again, Christ's life in my own. Verse 2 and 3. This enrolling was first made by Chirinus, the governor of Syria, and all went to be enrolled, everyone into his own city. I like to point out there, everyone went, that they all went, and in other words, they, they all obey this lawful decree. This is really a, a disruption in their lives. They're, they're losing work. They've got to travel. Joseph and Mary are going to have to travel three days on foot to get down to Bethlehem. You've got the pain and the, and the difficulty and the expense of the journey, and yet it's a legitimate law. Caesar is the one holding authority. Authority is from God from God above. And when it is a lawful law, we are bound in in conscience to to observe it. It isn't that we pick and choose. St. Paul makes it clear that the authority, he he holds the sword not in vain. A true law binds us in conscience as being the manifestation of the will of God. Verse 4, and Joseph also went up from Galilee out of the city of Nazareth into Judea to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was at the house and family of David. It's interesting, and, and I've, I often remark, Galilee, of course, is to the north of Jerusalem, and yet, in Sacred Scripture, again and again, we hear that they go down uh, to Galilee, and they go up to Jerusalem. It would be like saying, I'm going down to Canada and up to Mexico. Well, no, we wouldn't, we wouldn't say that. So while Jerusalem may actually be down from Galilee, the Holy Ghost in Sacred Scripture says they went up, because... I would say that what is what is down in the eyes of the world is often up in the eyes of God. Or what is what is scorned, what is what is uh, put aside by the world is often that which God chooses, precisely to to manifest his power. We see, as was mentioned before, that he is of the family of David, and it was to David the the promise had been made that the Messiah would be of his lineage and we see that that they are going then to the to the city of david which is bethlehem now we've heard many times doubtless in christmas sermons how bethlehem means house of bread and certainly how fitting that the bread of life our lord jesus christ is going to be born in the house of bread these are beautiful mysteries that are that are reproduced uh, every time we go to mass verse 5 to be enrolled with mary his espoused wife who was with child I had read recently that, in fact, Mary was not obliged um, to go down for the census. It would have been sufficient for her husband to go. Joseph could have gone by himself. He would have gone to the census uh, office or desk. They would have asked him, okay, where are you from? Where do you work? What's your income? Are you married? How many children, etc." And they would have got the information from the, from the head of the household, and that would have sufficed. And so Mary goes with him because even though she's not obliged, let's say by the world, she was certainly obliged by the prophecy of God that this child of hers was going to be born in Bethlehem. And there we can certainly learn the lesson that sometimes God demands things from us that we might not be strictly obliged to do in justice, but rather out of charity. We don't have an oblig- a strict obligation in justice, let's say, to do this. And yet out of charity, and the love of God, we, we are bound by that to perform this, this or that action. The religious spirit, the, the, the Christian spirit, is really a spirit of sacrifice. In verse 6, And it came to pass that when they were there, her days were accomplished that she should be delivered. When they were there, it was there at that moment when they were following God's will following his providence, obeying the lawful superior. It's at that moment, at that time, that God will manifest himself visibly to the world. And so, too, with us, again, we must be following his will if we're going to do any good, if God's grace is going to bless any of our actions, if we're going to bring others to our Lord. It must be precisely in in following providence. At that moment, God will manifest himself I've often asked myself, I've wondered, was Mary perhaps praying that it not be then? I mean, we can imagine any young mother expecting her, her first child. We can imagine perhaps she was praying to God, please, please not now. Please let it be just a few more days. Let the, let the census come to an end. Let the people go home. Then we'll be able to find a place to stay. Then we'll have a decent place in which to receive you. And the God that she's praying to has taken flesh in in Mary's womb. And yet God does not answer that prayer if she were to have prayed that. And if he does not, I mean, this is the God who who commanded us to, to honor our father and mother. If he does not hear this prayer, if he deals this hand, we can say, to our blessed mother, to our lady, it is to teach us a lesson. It is a stark reminder of what God said that, that my ways are not your ways, and your your thoughts are not my thoughts. We don't always understand, but there's a message here that God wants us to learn from, this desire that he has to embrace poverty, and this is a lesson we have to be ready to follow if, if God deigns to choose us for it. We read at the end of the verse that she should be delivered, so the days were accomplished that she should be delivered, Normally we say it is our Lord that it's going to be delivered, the child is delivered, but it is our lady, of course, who is delivered from the the burden, of course, the physical burden of carrying our Lord by bringing him visibly into her life. I propose that we could draw a parallel in our own life. By supernatural grace, we have our Lord, we have the Trinity dwelling within us. And yet we know that very often the demands of the Christian life can be, can be heavy. They can be, can be a burden to us. And yet when we bring God visibly into our lives, in other words, when we begin to live that Christian message, when we begin to manifest it, rather than making our life more difficult, it actually lessens our burden. Our Lady had our Lord within her, and then she was delivered from that burden, When she brought Christ physically into our life, her her load was lessened, we might say. And I would say that it is very much the same for the Christian. Our Lord has warned us that you can't serve God and mammon. If we find the Christian life difficult, it is very often because we're still trying to hold on to the world. We are still trying to serve two masters, which our Lord told us very clearly we cannot do. I am not conscious of any mortal sin, and so I hope that I am in God's grace. I hope that God is there living within me, as he's promised to do. We know God is in our life by grace, but the question for us is, is he visibly in our life, or is he kept hidden? Are people unable to see Christ because there's too much of ourselves manifested in our life? If we follow Mary and go back to the time before the Incarnation, We know that Mary had God living in her by sanctifying grace, and we know that God was in her life visibly by by her actions. We know that she was living a just life. So he was in her and outside of her, so to speak, by by her actions, by the life she led before she ever received him physically in her womb. And now in Bethlehem, he is really, truly brought physically, visibly into her life. We know from experience that Christ is never going to be permanently with me, abiding with me, until I have him both in me, by grace, and out of me, externally, by my actions. And this is a grace we should pray for every day. Verse 7, And she brought forth her firstborn son, and wrapped him up in swaddling clothes, and laid him in the manger, because there was no room for them in the inn. She brought forth her firstborn son, Now, this phrase does not imply that she subsequently had additional children. I can recall visiting Greece as a deacon with one of the professors, and we saw a tomb there, a pagan tomb, and it said that this woman had died giving birth to her firstborn son. Now, obviously, if the poor woman had died, she didn't have subsequently any children. And so this term, firstborn simply specifies that it was her firstborn son without implying anything subsequently would have followed. Now, once Mary brings Christ visibly into her life, what does she do? We're told that she wraps him up in swaddling clothes. She binds him. She makes him even more helpless than he is. We see nativity scenes, and and maybe the little baby Jesus is wearing really nothing but a loincloth but sacred scripture says that she she bound him up. She would have wrapped him up almost like a, like a mummy. His, his limbs would have been bound closely to his body. He would have been made absolutely helpless. He can't squirm. He can't, you know, brush a fly away from his face or, or anything of the sort. He's made helpless. I always like to remind retreatants that when we find Christ in our meditation, in our prayer, when he comes to visit us, that we too must bind him we bind him of course with the 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 bonds of love love is said to to bind hearts fast and so we must wrap him up and and keep him close to us he grants us these consolations these visitations when we when we pray when we draw near to him but we don't want to to let him get away so to speak we see as we mentioned before that she lays him in a manger Now a manger is nothing else but a feeding trough for animals. You have the stable, and within the stable there is a manger. It is a rough wood structure in which would have been placed hay or perhaps you know some sort of grain or fodder for the animals, and they would have come and they would have fed there. And this is the crib that our Lord chooses for himself. This is the the crib that the that the God of all creation destines for his son. The fathers of the church tell us that this is in order to teach us to have contempt for human grandeur, showing us a path again that we are to follow. The father could have deemed that his son be born into a a royal family in a palace. The daughter of a king could have been the virgin, the maiden that was chosen to bring him into the world, and yet he does not choose that. The evangelist tells us that these circumstances were more or less forced upon them, because they could find no room in the inn. But let's think about that. Let's reflect about that for a moment. Joseph, as head of the Holy Family, is responsible for protecting and providing for the needs of that family. And he's gone to Bethlehem for the census, and all of his family, his distant family, his relations, every one of the house of David is there. And so we can expect that he, he should have been able to find hospitality, Remember that in the Old Testament, hospitality was a grave obligation. You were obliged to receive strangers. And I've said many times on retreat, I can easily imagine, you know, Joseph showing up in town. The town is, is overcrowded. It's, it's busting at the seams. It's a little town, and yet all these people have come from far and wide for the census. And Joseph knows that his uncle, his uncle so-and-so is over here. And so he goes and he knocks on the door. And his uncle opens the door, and of course, it's easy for us to imagine that Joseph would have been welcomed. Joseph, how are you doing? It's, it's been years. Are you are you still living in Nazareth? Hey everyone, Joseph is here. This is my this is my nephew. And and hey, if you need anything built, this guy's a fantastic carpenter. He built this table for me. Joseph, come on in. Hey, hey, do you have a place to stay? You don't. Well, you know what? You've got your your bedroll. Why don't you just why don't you roll it out here? You you know, this corner, you'll be fine, you know, we're all here, we're about to have dinner, let's eat. These people are all family, and we could easily imagine them welcoming, them welcoming Joseph. We can imagine Joseph equally trying to maybe get a word in edgewise and trying to say that, well, actually, my wife is here. And he breaks the news, and, of course, they're excited. I didn't realize you, you were married. Congratulations. You know, what's her name? Well, her name's Mary. Oh, it's beautiful. Well, yes, bring her in. Hey, you guys will be fine. It's good to have you. Imagine Joseph's relief. Oh, thank goodness. At least we have somewhere we can stay. But he goes out to the road and and he brings Mary in. And the moment that Mary crosses the threshold, the whole mood of the room is going to change because we could easily imagine, you know, they see that this woman, she is heavy with child. We can imagine maybe the uncle's, you know, wife uh, elbowing him and saying, look, they can't stay here. This is this is not going to work. We have all of these guests and this, this poor woman, she's about to give birth. We don't want a crying baby. Everyone is tired. It's, it's just too crowded. It's not fitting. It's not decent. They have to go. And so then, as I said, the mood changes and suddenly the uncle says, oh, Joseph, gosh, you know, I'm sorry. Um, actually your cousin, so-and-so, you know, he's going to be coming in and he asked if he could stay here and, oh gosh, you know, we're not going to have room for you guys. Mary, it's so nice to meet you, but, um, you're welcome to stay for dinner, but you're going to have to find somewhere else to stay. I think that it is very easy to imagine this. They love Joseph. They're ready to receive Joseph. They're ready to receive Mary, but they are not ready to receive Jesus. And I would say that it's the same thing in our life. We may have friends. We may be welcomed. We may be, you know, the the center of attention in the life of the party. As long as we leave Jesus out of the equation, as long as Christ doesn't come into our life, But the moment we say, you know what, I can't do that, or I'm not comfortable doing that, or I don't think this is right, or I don't want to watch this, or I'm not going to go there, or I really think you should leave. Well, then the world turns on us, and like the Holy Family, we are rejected. Now, let me be frank for a minute and say that we can bring a lot of misery on ourselves by our lack of discretion, our lack of prudence, our inordinate zeal, and everything else And then we can pretend for a moment that, oh, gosh, I'm persecuted because of the faith, when really it's just, let's be honest, it's my own stupidity that I bring this on myself. That's not the case with Mary and Joseph. So there is no room for them. And finally, after, after going to house after house after house and meeting more or less the same reception from, again, his relatives, from those who should have received him, he is finally forced to resort to go out to the edge of town, to the eastern edge of Bethlehem, and there, there are a number of caves, and and one of them has been converted into a sort of stable. There's a, a corral uh, built in front of it. There are maybe stalls or something built uh, up under the the overhang. It is a place where the shepherds, where the you know the people of the area would bring their livestock and corral them at night. And if there were weather, of course, they could push in up under the the overhang and be out of the weather to some extent. And it is there in this damp, dark, cold, stinking place that the God of all creation enters the world that he himself has created, that he himself is sustaining, even at this very moment. Now, I mentioned at the start the overriding theme, maybe the grace really that we're looking in this mystery, of conquering self-pity. We can imagine that, that any other woman would have been in tears at this situation. We can imagine the heartache she would have caused her poor husband. But Mary, there's there's not a trace of self-pity. Joseph, whatever, whatever you can find, it'll be fine. It'll be fine as long as we're together. This is the place, in effect, that Providence has chosen, and it's fine. We accept it as coming from the hand of our Father in Heaven, that Father who we know loves us. Now, again, on retreat, I always like to point out that if we look at the manger scene, if we look at the, the scene of the stable, the scene of the nativity, our heart tends to glow with affection you know, the, the happy memories of, of our childhood and seeing, the, you know, the creche set up in our home or in our chapel, we see the, the, the stable, we see the, the animals, the ox and the ass and the, and the manger, and we see our, our lady and St. Joseph, we see our Lord and our, our hearts are really warmed. we think how quaint, how beautiful, how, how cozy, so to speak? But let's be honest, if we were to put this in modern terms, it would be like a a young couple coming to a city and not being able to find lodging and being forced to take up residence under a bridge. Think about that for a moment. What is going to be the reaction of the people? What is the reaction of your average person when he sees someone living under a bridge? Can you imagine? Are those people living there? Did that woman just have a baby there? These people are disgusting. These people are animals. Why why would they do that? And of course, this disdain, this this humiliation is not only on our Lord. It's on those who are closest to our Lord. Is it any wonder if in, in, in our lives, if the scorn of the cross falls upon us, should we be disappointed by that? Should we be angered or upset by that? Or should we rather relish in it? Seeing that it brings us closer to our model. God the Father has dealt a hand of poverty, humiliation, suffering to his Son. And those who are closest to his Son are going to be dealt the same hand. If we are close to Christ, that is going to be our lot in one way or another. Verse 8 to 11. And there were in the same country shepherds watching and keeping the night watches over their flock. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood by them, and the brightness of God shone round about them, and they feared with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy that shall be to all the people. For this day is born to you a Savior, who is Christ the Lord in the city of David. In the country, keeping the night watches. What do we see these shepherds doing? We see them doing their duties of state. They are are vigilant, they are watchful. We think of the old, the axiom, uh, vigilate, orate." Be vigilant, be watchful, be prayerful. And while they are there doing their duties of state, the angel appears to them, and they fear with great fear. And let's be honest, maybe maybe we too, when God draws near to us, when God sends an, an angel or an inspiration to us, we can fear, we might draw back. Scripture tells us that God is a consuming fire. And typically when a consuming fire approaches us, a wildfire or something, we naturally flee. This bright light that shines about them. What is it but this consuming fire? We may fear to write God that blank check. Or we may fear to bind ourselves to him, knowing a consuming fire is hot. What is he going to ask of me? What is he going to demand of me? If I give him a blank check to do with me as he wants to, send me where he, where he pleases, I fear a little bit the amount he might fill in. And yet again, the angel tells us, do not fear. God is our father and God loves us. Do we believe that or do we not? Bishop Fulton Sheen, reflecting on this apparition, points out that, that God reveals himself to the very great and to the very small it's to the magi that he's going to send a sign. And it is to the shepherds that he sends this message, this good news, this, these tidings of great joy. Those who are left out are precisely those who are in the middle, those who think they know. It is they who are left out, those who are abandoned. Let us pray that God have mercy on us. God help us if we, if we think we are sufficient, because we will be left out. If we are humble, God will, God will come to us. If we are great in the sense of striving after wisdom, like the magi, God likewise will not deny us what we seek. The trouble, again, is for those who are kind of in the middle, those who are sufficient unto themselves. In the Apocalypse, we read, you know, were that you were hot or cold, but because you are lukewarm, I will spit you out, I will vomit you out of my mouth. If we are not making progress in the spiritual life, we are actually regressing. Let us strive. Verse 12 to 14. And this shall be a sign unto you. You shall find the infant wrapped in swaddling clothes and laid in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace to men of goodwill. The angels tell them that the Savior will be laid in a manger and wrapped in swaddling clothes. Perhaps these shepherds are well familiar with this stable where the Holy Family has taken up refuge. St. Jerome tells us that on the east side of Bethlehem, St. Jerome is writing in the in the 300s, that there were many caves or grottos there on the eastern edge of, of Bethlehem in the hills. And doubtless, these, these shepherds would have been familiar with it. The prophet Habakkuk, he, he tells us that the, the Messiah, he will be he will be laying between two beasts. We always see the ox and the ass, of course, in the manger. The prophet Isaiah, in fact, of Isaiah chapter one, verse three, he says, The ox knows his owner and the ass his master's crib, but Israel hath not known me, and my people hath not understood. In all of these scenes of our Lord's life, I, I didn't mention it before, but we we want to make ourselves eyewitnesses. We want to really put ourselves in the scene. And I I always like to say, you know, it's uh, if we're going to picture ourselves in the scene, well, well, the uh, the dumb ox or the the stubborn ass, well, those are pretty good stand-ins for for any one of us. Another striking thing in these verses, we see this army of angels that are there. Glorifying God and announcing the birth of our Lord. And it's ironic because at our Lord's entrance, of course, there's this army of angels. And so when our Lord is entering creation, and yet when it's our Lord's time to exit creation by his death, these angels, these same angels are are ordered, so to speak, to stand down. You remember Peter later, he's going to take up a sword. Our Lord will tell him, put your sword back in its place. Know you not that I could ask my father and he will send 12 legions of angels? It really is a striking contrast. Now they announce peace to to men of goodwill. Sometimes we see this translated as peace on earth, goodwill towards men. But this is not what the Gospels tell us. They tell us that God will give peace to men of goodwill. Our will will be good when it is ordered towards God, when it is subject to God and his will and his laws. And when we are there in that state, the peace that will flood our hearts, it's that peace that our Lord said the world cannot take from you. It is the peace that arises from order. True peace is nothing else than the tranquility of order. We can be, in fact, in the midst of of trials, of temptations, of difficulty, And yet be very much at peace, knowing that we are doing God's will. Now we mentioned before that Caesar Augustus has already brought peace to the world. He has conquered and subdued all of the the, the known lands, at least the lands within the the Roman Empire. And so the peace that's being spoken of here is an internal peace that Christ will bring. St. Augustine said that the birth of Christ gives not peace of mind and salvation, except to those who are of good will Because he works not our good against our will, but with our concurrence. I believe I said it before that that God who created you without your help, he will not save you without your help. And for that, he needs our will. We have to accept this gift that he offers. We have to accept to take up that cross and follow him. Because that's the path that leads to salvation. Verse 15 And it came to pass, after the angels departed from them into heaven, the shepherds said one to another, Let us go over to Bethlehem, and let us see this word that has come to pass, which the Lord hath showed us. Look at that verse and consider what they say. They're going to see what? They're going to see the word that has come to pass. And in truth, that's what they're going to see. They are going to see the word of God made flesh, made man. The word of God that was invisible from all eternity that is now made flesh, made visible. St. Ambrose would say, when we see this flesh, when we see our Lord, we see God. Verse 16, and they came with haste and they found Mary and Joseph and the infant lying in the manger. Verse 17, and seeing they understood of the word that had been spoken to them concerning this child. I love the beginning of verse 16. They came with haste. God's will, God's message has been made manifest to them, and they do not hesitate. They don't procrastinate. They follow immediately. Their hearts respond. Their hearts leap at this opportunity. They go, and they see, and they understand that three-step process again. They go, they contemplate Christ. They, they, they reflect upon him They see that the message, the prophecies have been fulfilled and they understand. It's not just the hearing of the message. It's not just the learning of the faith, you know, a theoretical knowledge that's going to make us holy. St. John, uh, in St. John's Gospel, chapter 13, verse 17, our Lord makes it very clear that if you know these things, you shall be blessed if you do them. It is not simply that... You know, we know much about God, but it's rather, what does our heart do? Do we love God? Do we imitate God? Do we seek to serve God? This is what we were made for. Verse 18, and all that heard wondered at those things that were told them by the shepherds. All that heard wondered. Later, when the Magi came, we're going to see that that all of Jerusalem was disturbed. Why are they disturbed? Why are they upset? Here now in Bethlehem, did no one else see these angels? Did no one else hear this message? Are they so caught up in the hustle and bustle of the senses with people coming and going that they just completely missed it? When we fail to understand God's action in our life, when we fail to see his guiding hand, is it not because we, we drift away? We get very caught up again in our own lives, our own difficulties, and we lose our way these people do not understand they they wonder but what do we what do we see Mary do verse 19 but Mary kept all these words pondering them in her heart and that really needs to be our response when we don't understand st joseph of course when he he found his wife he found his espoused beloved mary with child he didn't understand he reple- he reflected he pondered and so too when we don't understand it's best to to keep silence to reflect, to ask God to enlighten us before before we speak, before we act. Mary reflects on the words of the shepherds. She continues to compare what has been accomplished in her concerning Christ with what she knew, with what was written about him by the prophets and what now these shepherds are telling her. Verse 20, and the shepherds returned glorifying and praising God for all the things they had heard and seen as it was told unto them. We see the shepherds going back, going back to their duties of state, and yet glorifying and praising God. After we connect with God in prayer, after we find that contact with him, the best way that we're going to glorify him is is going to be by doing his will, that will that is manifested so clearly in in our duties of state. The shepherds heard the message, they went and saw and confirmed what had been told them, And then they go back and they glorify God. In our mental prayer, our goal is to come into contact with our Lord Jesus Christ. And through that contact then to to have our, our life touched by him, to have our behavior affected by that contact we've had with him. So I think we can wrap things up here. Again, I invite you. Not only to, to listen to these conferences, but, but actually to use them for the reason for which they're given, which is to encourage you to go back and review this text, review this these gospel passages again for a third time, going through it line by line, asking God for light and grace, asking him for, for the lesson that he's trying to teach you as an individual, and then taking what you've learned and applying it to your own life, so that every day, every one of us may become a little bit more Christ-like. Take care and God bless you.